pleasure it is um, for me to be here and um, to join my friends and we've been doing this again for I think 30, 31 years and um, always one of the highlights, highlights of the year. When we met for breakfast, I forget when it was, but when, whenever we met, um, we decided that um, this year we'll take a look at some of the stories of our tradition and see how that informs our understandings of ethics. Stories that teach ethics and morals. And um, so I've chosen three or four that I thought might, might be good representation of the kind of stories that, um, that we like to tell. So uh, the first story I'm gonna tell you is a story and it is called uh, Prayer Island. Prayer Island, okay? Once it happened that a ship was sailing across the sea when a violent storm erupted. The vessel was tossed from side to side and as the sailors scurried to hold on to whatever they could, the ship began to break into pieces and many were unfortunately hurled into the ocean, never to be seen again. Only two of the men were able to swim safely to a shore nearby where they collapsed in exhaustion. When they awoke many hours later, they realized that they were on a small deserted island. They walked a bit this way and that, and sadly realized that there were but a few long, low-lying bushes on the island, and none of them seemed to be bearing anything of value to eat. There were no animals on the island, and the only water available was seawater. It did not take them long to realize that they were in trouble. So they walked around some more and then some more until they traveled the entire length and breadth of the island, only to discover there was nothing more to discover. What to do, what to do? They returned to the shore where they first landed, sat on a couple of large rocks and were lost in thought. There must be something we can do, each thought to himself. There were no flares to send into the sky, no way to build a fire and send smoke signals. As a matter of fact, they did not notice any vessels in the horizon. It looked pretty gloom and grim for the two sailors. They looked at each other, stared into the vastness of the water, held their hands down, noticing the sand between their toes, back out to the water, to the sky, back to each other, what to do. Finally, one of them spoke up. Well, my friend, he started, looks like we are lost. Doesn't look like anybody can find us. Doesn't look like anyone's even looking for us. Everyone on board the vessel is gone, and no one knows that we are here. The other sailor just nodded and let out a sigh, again quiet. Then the other sailor spoke up. When I was younger, he says, I was taught that when all else fails, we should turn to God. Perhaps if we pray, salvation will come from somewhere. Nothing else we could do. Agreeing there seemed no other recourse, they agreed to do just that. Now, praying for something like a new bike or to be able to be successful in business is one thing. But to pray for desperate help, to pray for sustenance, to pray for your very life, now that requires the most special, intentional, and spiritual prayers. So to help them achieve this high level of prayer, they devised a scheme. They set up a contest to see whose prayer was more powerful. So they agreed to divide the territory in the island 
between them and stay on opposite sides. First and foremost, they agreed to pray for food, each again standing on his own half of the island. All night long they prayed. The next morning, the first man saw a fruit-bearing tree growing up on his side of the land, and he was able to eat the fruit. When he checked with the other person, it turned out the second, parcels, second man's parcel of land remained barren. Nothing had grown in his section. The first man shared his fruit with the other man, and neither spoke about why one man's prayers were answered while the other one's prayers were not. After a few days now, and their hunger had been taken care of, they decided to pray for companionship. Again, they spent all night praying. The next morning, the first man noticed a figure swimming to shore. Turned out it was a woman, the only survivor from another shipwreck. However, on the other side of the island, no one showed up. So the three of them hung around, trying to figure out their next move. And again, neither one spoke about why one man's prayers were answered and the other ones were not. After a few days, they decided to pray for a house, for clothes and more food. And again, all three prayed throughout the night. The next morning, the man, first man woke up to find a small house on his part of the island. Was it his prayer? Was it magic? He walked into the house and he saw many items of food and items of clothing. The second man woke up in the morning to find nothing new on his island. The first man shared his new wealth with the second man, and again, neither one spoke about why one man's prayers were answered while the other ones were not. Well, it was now a few weeks that they had been on the island, and they both decided it was time to leave. And since some prayers were previously answered for food, companionship, and a house, now it was time to try to get off the island. So they both decided to pray for a ship to come by and save them. Well, the next morning, as if by magic, or was it prayer, the first man woke up to find a ship docked on his side of the island. And as happened so many times before, the second man woke up in the morning to find nothing docked on, the island, on his side of the island. So the first man and his new friend were anxious to board the ship and head for home. And for the first time, he decided not to share his good fortune with the second man. He thought to himself, I want to make sure I make it home successfully. And there are many challenges when sailing in the open seas. There will be many prayers that might have to be answered. And did not want to take a chance with the second man. So the first man boarded the ship with his friend and decided to leave the second man on the island. He considered the other man unworthy to receive God's blessings, since none of his prayers had been answered before. As the ship was about to leave, the first man heard a voice from heaven booming. Why are you leaving your companion on the island? He has been your companion for many weeks, and you have previously shared everything with him. Why are you abandoning him at this time? God bless you. The man turned to the sky and replied, My blessings are mine alone, since I was the one who prayed for them. All my prayers were answered, while his were not. So he doesn't deserve to leave the island. And besides, if we encounter any problems in our voyage, we will need to have our prayers answered, not ignored. Whatever he prayed for didn't come about, and so we're leaving him. 
There was silence for a few seconds. The man was waiting for a response. Again, a booming voice from heaven spoke. You are severely mistaken, the voice rebuked. While you were praying for food and companionship and a house and clothes and this very ship you are standing on, the other man had one single solitary prayer. The man seemed confused, but the booming voice continues, and furthermore, if not for this one single prayer, you would not have received any of my blessings and none of your prayers would have been answered. Again, silence. After a few seconds, the man spoke up again, lifting his voice to the sky. Tell me. He spoke towards the booming voice. What did he pray that I should owe him anything? Again, silence. And then the booming voice replied. He prayed that all of your prayers should be answered, which they were thanks to him. The man's eyes welled up in tears, realizing how foolish and selfish he had been. He ran from the ship to find the second man to tell him about the ship that appeared on the side of the island. And now all three of them sailed off, heading for home. So what do we learn from that story? Don't be on an island, I guess, is one of them, right? <laughs> what do we learn? What do we learn from that, that story? Generosity, not to, be, not to be selfish. And what do we learn about prayer? Is there a, the highest form of prayer is what? To pray for somebody else, right? when you pray for somebody else, rather than just pray, pray, pray for ours. So, um, I'll, I'll read one more story and then you'll come up or, okay. uh, can you read three more or 20? Two, two more. Two more. I can do 20 more. Because my stories are short. This story reminds me of a, there's a, there's, there's a couple out on a, on a cruise boat and all of a sudden something happens and they hit something and, so here they are left in the middle of the night hanging on to a, a single plank, very, very dark. The ship, all the, all the passengers are gone, and the woman says, you know, we're gonna die. And the man says, don't worry, they're gonna find us. She says, you're crazy. We're in the middle of nowhere, no one knows we're here. It's dark, sharks, who knows what? How long can we hold on? Don't worry, they're gonna find us. She says, how can you be sure? He says, well, Remember we were in church last, last Sunday? Yep. Remember we pledged $5,000? Yep. Don't worry, they'll find us. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of truth to that story. This next story um, is called The Damaged Diamond. Once there lived a king who ruled many lands. He was very powerful, very smart and rich. As a matter of fact, he was so rich that he owned every type of stone and gem that had ever been made. They were in every color imaginable, every size, from the tiniest to the largest. If a gem or stone appeared anywhere in the world, the king most likely had a copy of it or had the only copy. Every evening after supper, he would um, listen to music and from the finest musicians and 
um, after everybody went to sleep, the king would go into his vault, take out a small bag filled with fine jewels, and he would look at them, check in their color, their hue, how they sparkled when he held them up to the light, and how they felt so cool and beautiful in his hands. He did this every night, checking out a different bag every night. And since he had so many bags of jewels, he could literally check out a different bag every day for a year before he would come across the same bag again. On this one particular night, after an especially delicious meal and most beautiful music he had ever heard, he once again retired to his chambers, walked over to the vault, and pulled out the next bag in line. Now, this bag was special. Unlike the other bags that contained small and medium-sized jewels, this one only contained one jewel, was a diamond. And not just any diamond. It was not only the largest diamond in the world, it was the most flawless diamond in the world. No one else was allowed to hold it or even touch it because it was so beautiful and because it was so valuable. Open the leather bag slowly as if to make the experience last as long as possible, reached in and carefully pulled out the diamond. So beautiful, he thought to himself, so magnificent, so remarkable. And to think it's a one-of-a-kind stone. And this was his and only his. He held up the diamond to the light and was lost in the sparkle and luster. He held the diamond this way and that way, rolled it around with his fingers, smiling ear to ear, till suddenly he stopped. Right there on the surface, he saw a line that looked like a scratch. Impossible, he thought. The last time he saw the diamond and held it in his hand, it was perfect, even more than perfect. He says to himself, I'm sure no one touched it, but how could this be? He brought the diamond away from the light and checked again. Maybe it was just a shadow, a trick on his eyes. Maybe he was sleepy and he thought there was a scratch. No such luck. Even away from the light, he could notice the scratch and his heart fell. He held the diamond in his hands and thought and thought, saying to himself, I could spend a lot of time and money trying to figure out if anybody handled it or mishandled the diamond and I'll probably never find the culprit. What if it just happened on its own? How foolish I would look after an exhaustive investigation. Turns out no one even had access to it. What if I did the scratch by accident? No, he said, I'm not going to look for an offender. However, I will look for someone to fix it. With that, he called upon his advisors to come to him at once. <clears throat> they were, of course, already retired to sleep, but they showed up in the king's chambers. And, you know, they said, when the king calls, you run. Once they were assembled, he laid out the plan. He made sure somebody was writing down what he was saying. He cleared his throat and began, <clears throat> Let it be known that one of the king's diamonds has been found with a scratch. Let all jewelers, artisans, craftsmen, and skilled workers heed this request. If you are up to the challenge, you are requested to appear before the king. Whoever can best fix the diamond will be given a bag of jewels in return. The scribe read back to the words of the king, who was satisfied with what he heard. He urged his advisors to get the word out at once and to carefully interview and scrutinize all who applied for this very important, very critical royal task. Within a week, the top four candidates appeared before the king. He thanked them for being there, for their willingness to help the royal court by fixing the king's diamond. 
he explained how important it was for him and how much the diamond means to him. And it's the largest diamond in the world and the most perfect stone anyone had seen. Then the king allowed each of them to hold the diamond in their hand, and the last one carefully returned the diamond to the king. Now the king announced, here's the deal. If you believe you can fix the diamond, I invite you to give it a try. However, here are the rules, so pay close attention. If you fix the diamond to my liking, I will give you this bag of jewels, full, full of jewels. You'll never have to work again. However, should you not fix it to my liking or make the scratch worse, or spirits forbid you break the diamond, it will cost you your head. Whoops. With that, the king sat back on his throne, waited to see what would happen next. The artisans looked at each other, puzzled as, what do you say, and even more confused about what to do. The king noticed their comfort, so he asked him to go to another room, think about what he said, and return with an answer. He reminded them if they turned on his offer, would not hold it against them, and they would be free to go home. So one of the king's advisors led the four to another room, waited for them outside. Inside the room, the four remained silent, going over in their minds what the king had told them, weighing their rewards against the consequences, each wondering whether they were skilled enough to earn the bag of jewels, or perhaps not skilled enough and lose their heads. A few moments later, the king's advisors came into the room, explained that the king will call for them one by one, asking for a decision. First artisan stepped forward and spoke first. He said, Your Highness, although I'm very skilled with many years' experience, as much as I would love to help the king, who has been so kind and generous, I'm afraid I will not be able to meet the king's expectation. He finished, he bowed, and stepped back. The king just nodded. The second artisan stepped forward and basically replied what the first one said. He bowed, stepped back. Third artisan stepped forward, repeated what the other two had said, he bowed down and stepped back. All eyes were now on the fourth. The last remaining artisan stepped forward and addressed the king. Your, your Highness, it would be my honor and privilege to work on the king's diamond. And I'm confident that the king will be pleased with my work. Hearing that, the king sported a white smile, thanked the artisan for his willingness to fix the diamond. The other three were dismissed and sent on their way. The king now addressed the artisan. Take as long as you need, and all the royal tools are available to you. Now, you do understand what I said before about the bag of jewels or your head. The artisan nodded and said the only tool he needed was in his pocket. The king nodded in approval as the artisan and the diamond were led into a room near the king's chambers. And with that, the king went about his business while an advisor stood outside the room in case the artisan needed something, water, another tool, some food, whatever. An hour passed, and just as the king was beginning to get anxious, the advisor excitedly ran to a room to announce the artisan was done, was ready to show his handiwork to the king. In walked the artisan with the diamond in his hand, covered by a protective cloth. The king sat on his throne, so eager and thrilled to see his diamond, again perfect and without any flaws. The artisan walked up to the king, he took the obligatory bow, handed the covered diamond to the king. But before the king had a chance to unwrap the diamond, the artisan spoke up. Your Highness, he said, in all honesty, I was not able to fix the scratch. However, I'm sure you'll be pleased with the results. 
Now Samuel disappointed and with a serious look on his face, the king slowly unwrapped the diamond. He held the diamond in his hand and brought it up to the light. Yes, the scratch was certainly there. But wait, there seems to be more etching than he had noticed before. As he slowly rotated the diamond in his hand, his scowl became a white smile. What the artisan had done, he etched a beautiful rose on the diamond using the scratch as the stem of the rose. Seeing the king smile, the artisan felt a sense of deep relief. The king was ecstatic. Now his beautiful diamond had been made even more lovely with the addition of a rose. The diamond not only remained beautiful and flawless, it was made even more so with the addition of the rose. The king was so pleased that he dismissed the artisan with not one but two bags of jewels. And the king was happy, and that meant everyone's, everyone else in the kingdom was happy. What did we learn from that story? I'm sorry? If you have the will, you have the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, please. There you go. Right? You can turn to That's how you look at it. Absolutely. We can take, take life's challenges that come at us and we can, we can find a way to turn them around or to, to change our perspective of it and uh, turn the scratch into a beautiful rose. Did you want me to go one more, or do you want to come up? Let me do my two, and then I'll come back up. How's that? Sure. <laughs> so, we'll tag team. Yeah. Nice to see you. So when Eva and I began talking about stories and our traditions, I had to sit back and say, you know, we, most of the stories I remember from our childhood used and to teach were all coming from the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, out of Torah and throughout, and it's like, those are kind of joint stories. So I also thought about the fact that Jesus taught with story, as we call the parables. And then also as we begin to look at the whole of the Gospels, they aren't just biographies or historical documents, but they also hold stories throughout. So I made the decision to pick one parable and then pick an event from one of the Gospels as well. And so the first story, which I thought was probably the most obvious that has many, many layers to it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And um, often when we preach it, we preach it from a spiritual standpoint or we look at it from um, what we call orthopraxis versus orthodoxy. Praxis being how we practice our faith, orthodoxy being right teaching. 
but there's also even further messages from there if you listen, because it is couched within the great law, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's in that setting that the story is told. So this is from Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and so who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go, be going down the same road, and when he saw the man passed by on the other side. So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. When he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. He said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have had. So which of these two do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. There's a lot going on more than just the simple story of someone asking Jesus a question about who my neighbor is. And it's very easy for us as we read through it to look at all the different people who walk by and condemn them from our perspective. But if we put ourselves back into the time, into the place of the story, what we begin to see is that there was justification and a sense of a right way of doing things. Those who passed by were part of the temple authority and on their way to do sacrifice or to do ceremony or ritual, had to maintain ritual purity. And so when they saw the man on the side, the fear they had was of being ritually defiled. And the other piece that puts us into context is who the Samaritan is, because the Samaritan in that day was looked down upon. He wasn't good enough from anyone's perspective. They were outsiders to the um, faith. They were outsiders and marginalized people of society. And so there wasn't much expected of them. And so Jesus pulls the story together and what he begins to do is weave a tale, not just about who your neighbor is, but what righteousness looks like. He begins to weave a tale that righteousness is not what's on the surface. It's not about what we have or how we're titled or the role we play before God. All that is wonderful but it is an understanding of what mercy and compassion and concern is. That, he is telling them, is what makes one righteous before God. 
And then when asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus basically says, anyone you come across on the street, your fellow man or fellow woman. So that's sort of the overview of the story and sort of the high points of what Jesus is teaching. But I also realized as I read it in preparation for today, another significant ethical point that Jesus is raising. And again, it's understanding the commerce and the value of the monies back then because the man who is a Samaritan who for all intent and purposes probably should not have had a lot of money obviously found a way to be successful because he was carrying with him two denarii. A denarii on the average market back then was worth about two years of labor. He leaves two denarii with the innkeeper. Two years of labor, so it's a huge sum. Probably in today's world, probably in value about 100,000 to 200,000 apiece to care for the man at the inn. So it would more than cover a year's stay at the inn. And then he said, when I return, I will pay you whatever costs overrun what I'm giving you, which was highly unlikely. And as I thought about that statement, I realized there's a much more or much deeper ethical statement being made by Jesus. And it is about the value of human life. Human life, no matter how dirty or defiled it may seem or appear to be, is worth more than anything else. It is to be greatly valued, greatly cared for, and greatly respected. And so as Jesus weaves the story about a man dying on the side of the road, he teaches his people about compassion, about mercy, not just for the one that lives next door, but for the stranger as well, and about righteousness, and ultimately about the value of human life itself. It has value beyond what we can hope or comprehend, for we are all valuable in the sight of God and created in God's image. Any other thoughts on that as we move forward? And the second story I looked at was a story directly from the gospel, and it's about somebody Jesus runs across, or actually runs across Jesus as he is journeying through um, Jericho. And again, when we read it in today's ears, we don't quite get the sense of what's going on. We just know something odd is happening. And it's the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, could not see over the crowd. I understand the problem well. <laughs> so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest with that sinner. 
But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody, cut out anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. Another kind of interesting story, and again, it needs to be put into context. Um, I guess the best thing to say first and foremost is, just like today, the tax collector was not a warmly loved part of society. Um, part of being the tax collector in that day was about collecting taxes on behalf of the emperor. But there's sort of a way that was done is that it was told, you have to find X amount in taxes. And then to supplement their salary as tax collectors, they would add their own cut on it. So it was kind of like a loan shark. I'll loan you X amount of money and I'll come back for payment and then I'll collect my payment on top of that payment on top of that payment. And so they were perceived by the people of the day as basically robbers. They were again, even though they were wealthy, were marginalized and seen as outside of society. And so when Jesus comes through, and Zacchaeus yells out to him with excitement, and Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house to have dinner. Well, we see the same issue going on that we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Eating with a tax collector or a sinner would be defiling Jesus, who is this wonderful rabbi, and should be above eating with all of that riffraff from his perspective. But he saw something in Zacchaeus that the others didn't see. Can anyone guess what he may have seen in that man hanging out in a fig tree yelling out for him? Willingness. Willingness. Anything else? Faith. Faith. Anything else? The sincerity of his heart. What everyone else saw around him was a tax collector and therefore labeled him and boxed him in. But what this story is, is about how God sees more deeply into each and every one of us and can see what is truly on our hearts, whether it's good or faithful or bad or indifferent. And that, for God, is far more important than anything else. The other part of this story talks to us about Forgiveness and repentance in the mercy of God. Zacchaeus had robbed other people. There's no doubt about that. He's upfront about it. But he has a turn of heart with Jesus. And unlike the foolish rich man, he understands how to restore or what is needed to restore those from whom he has offended. I will give four times back that which I have taken. And so because he is willing to make amends, to admit his fault before God and to seek the love of God, he is worthy to dine at the banquet of the heavenly host, or in this case, to invite the heavenly host into his home to dine with him. So those are my stories from our tradition.
Right? They're not quite as wonderful and as full as the stories. All stories are good. But you get all the good ones. So, <laughs> so with that, I will invite Ethan back to share his. Your story actually reminded me of another story that I, I don't have here in this collection, but it's the story of a rabbi who visits a small village, and after services, all the important people of the congregation invite the rabbi to come to their home, thinking it would be a very honorable thing to do, and the rabbi says, who is the poorest person, the poorest man in the congregation, and they point to someone, and he said, that's the home I'm not going to go to. I'm going to honor that person. And he walks up, he says, it would be my honor to come to your house for dinner. And the man is saying, oh my goodness, I, we don't have enough food, I, my house is in shambles, I'm a poor man, but what an opportunity to host a famous rabbi. He said, of course, of course you can come by. So they're walking home from the from temple and the poor man is going in his mind, what, what are we going to do? Because my chairs, they all have holes in them and they look horrible, but we don't have anything else. Well, he says the rabbi will just have to overlook it. And my dishes aren't that great, he'll have to overlook it. My wife is a good cook and that's, that's all there is to it. So they, they come in the house and he tells his wife, we have, a, we have a guest, famous rabbi, and you know, she smiles on the outside but panics on the inside, but well, of course, you know, you always have room at our table. Well. They make a blessing over the wine, like they always do, and when they sit down, the rabbi sits down and um, immediately falls through the chair, falls on the ground. And the poor man is thinking, oh my goodness, how embarrassing. But he says to the rabbi, you know, in the Bible, when Jacob was fleeing Esau, remember that story when you know, he, he sort of stole the birthright, the birth blessing from Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him, and, and his mother said, go live with your uncle Laban. The Bible says that he, he traveled, and when he, when he was overnight, he um, took a stone and used it as a pillow to go to sleep. And the rabbis, in, in their interpretation, offered this, they said, you know, there were actually no big rocks there, but they were all small little rocks, little pebbles. But as he put his head down, all the little pebbles wanted to be under his head, and they came together and coalesced into a big rock so he could be comfortable. And he says to the rabbi, you know, my chair had all the little holes in it, but when you sat down, all the little holes wanted to be under you. <laughs> so they coalesced together to make a hole, boom. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm going to change the tone just a little bit. This is, this is um, a favorite in our tradition. It's called, It Could Always Be Worse, <laughs> which, which we know it always could be. Once upon a time in a small village, a poor, unfortunate man lived with his mother, his wife, and his six kids. A little one-room hut. Because they were so crowded, the man and his wife often argued the children were noisy, they fought. In winter, when the lights were long and the days were short, life was especially difficult. The hut was full of crying and quarreling. To put it mildly, the man was going crazy. One day when the poor man, unfortunate, poor, 
Unfortunate man couldn't stand it anymore. He ran to the rabbi for advice. Rabbi, he said, things are awful in my house and getting worse. We're so poor that my mother, my wife, my six kids, we all live together in a small, small hut. We're too crowded. There's so much noise. Please help me, Rabbi. I'm about to lose my mind. I'll do whatever you say. Rabbi thought, pulled on his beard, as if in deep thought. At last he said, tell me, my poor man, do you own any animals? Maybe a chicken or two? Yes, of course, he says. I have a few chickens and a rooster and a goose. Fine, the rabbi said. Go home, take the chickens, the rooster and the goose, and bring him into the house to live with you. The man looked at the rabbi in dismay and disbelief, somewhat surprised. But thought the rabbi is a wise man and knows what he's talking about. This must be good advice. Yes, indeed, the rabbi said. He left the rabbi's room, he hurried home, and despite his wife's strong objections, saying, who could do such a thing? He took the chickens, the rooster, and the goose out of the shed and into his little hut. Well, after a few days, life in the hut was worse than before. Now with the quarreling and crying, there was honking and crowing and <laughs> clucking. There were feathers in the soup. The hut stayed just as small and the children were getting bigger. When the poor unfortunate man couldn't stand anymore, he ran back to the rabbi, help, he said, please, what a misfortune has befallen me. The crying and the quarreling and the honking, clucking and crying. Feathers all over the place. Rabbi, it couldn't be worse. Help me, please. Rabbi, listen. Stroke his beard. Tell me, Sam, do you, do you happen to have a goat? Yes, I have an old goat, but not worth much. Excellent, the rabbi said. Go home and take the old goat into your house to live with you. Poor man was dismayed. Do you really mean it, Rabbi? He says, come, come. Do what I tell you. Poor unfortunate man tramped back home with his head hanging down, and again, despite the strong objections of his wife, he brought the goat into the hut. Well, after a few days, life in the little hut was getting much worse. Now with the crying and the quarreling and the clucking and the honking and crowing, the goat went wild, pushing and butting everyone with its horns. The hut seemed smaller and the children were getting bigger. And when, the, and when poor unfortunate man couldn't stand anymore, he ran back to the rabbi. Rabbi, help me, he said. The goat is running wild. My life has become a nightmare. Rabbi listened and thought, stroking his beard. At last he spoke. Tell me, my good man, is it possible you have a cow? Young or old doesn't matter. Yes, rabbi, it's true, I have a cow. The poor man was fearful of what the, he might hear the rabbi say. But his worst fears were realized. Go home then, he said, and take the cow into your hut. The poor man protested, oh no, surely you don't mean that, Rabbi. But he was stern, do it, do it at once. So the poor unfortunate man trudged back home with a heavy heart, and with his wife now yelling in his ear that she had reached the end of a rope, he nevertheless brought the cow into his hut. And by now, even he was thinking, and his wife did, maybe the rabbi wasn't thinking clearly. Maybe he wasn't feeling well and thus nipped not giving his usual excellent advice. Well, after some days, life in the hut was very much worse than before. Quarreling, the goat was running wild, the cow was trampling everything. The poor man could hardly believe his misfortune. At last, when he couldn't stand it anymore, he once again ran to the rabbi for help. Oh, rabbi, he said, help me, save me. The end of the world has come. The cow is now trampling over everything. There's not even room to breathe. What a nightmare. Wait, it's worse than a nightmare. 
And added to that, my wife and children are ready to move in with my wife's parents and just leave me with all the animals. And frankly, your advice hasn't been working too well. <laughs> Rabbi listened quietly as the man unloaded his frustration and anger at this situation. At last, he put his hand on the man's soldier, shoulder, and with a kindly, soft voice, he said, go home now and let all the animals out of your hut. The man couldn't believe his ears. Finally, he heard advice that made sense. I will, I will, I'll do it right away. The poor, unfortunate man hurried home and shared the good news with his wife. He let out the cow, the goat, the chickens, the goose, and the rooster out of his little hut. And that night, the poor man and his family slept peacefully. There was no crowing, there was no clucking, no honking, plenty of room to breathe. The very next day, the poor man ran back to the rabbi. My dear rabbi, he said, all this time I thought it was getting terrible advice, but now with all the animals gone, life is so sweet. With just my family in the hut, it's so quiet, it's so roomy, it's so peaceful. Life is now such a pleasure. You've surely taught us that it certainly could always be worse. And the rabbi smiled to himself as he watched the man head for home, walking with a happy gait and whistling to himself. Moral of the story, it could. It could always be better, right? We are, we are, we are taught this sense of, of having a positive mental attitude. So when things don't seem to go our way, we say, you know what? Things could go worse, and thank God they're not. And that can give us, that can give us a certain perspective. You know, when, uh, when somebody says, you know, my husband or my wife snores, snores so loudly I can hardly sleep, you can say, you know what? You've got somebody next to you. Right? When you complain that taxes on your house are going up, you can say, well, you know what? You've got a house. Price of gasoline is going up. You've got a car. You've got a car. So, are we done? One more? What's this? All righty. Well, thank you very much.